You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. Since this whole coronavirus thing has started, I was really, uh, in the beginning, I was really missing sports because I love sports. But I think it's like anything in life. Once you go with something for a long time, well, not a long time, it's three weeks, it seems forever, you don't really miss it anymore. So I want sports to come back, but in the same thing, I'd rather have society get back to normal. So, anyway, we have a great show today. My guest is uh, is an awesome guitarist, singer, and songwriter from the band Y&T. My guest is Dave Menachetti. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing well, thanks. Now, i got to ask you, what besides, of course, performing live, because that's your love, what do you miss the most from being stuck in at home? <laughs> well, I guess just, uh, you know, when I'm home and, and not playing, and, you know, it's just, there's, there's a certain flow to things and uh some of that flow is i do my chores around the house like going and shopping (laughs) for groceries Uh, it's just the standard old you know stuff that everybody does and uh i miss doing that actually strangely enough now I want to talk to you about your career, but I want to talk about the wine. How did you get into it? No, because it just amazes me. Because you know, you don't think of you know a rock star, you know, being in a winery. How how did you get involved with it? Is was it from touring all those years and trying really good wines? I mean, when did you develop this love of wine? I don't. Well, that that happened probably about uh, two thousand, somewhere in that range. Uh, just, it was really, I was never much of a wine drinker and, uh, my wife and I were in Italy for the first time in 2001 and, uh, we just started drinking the local wines and realizing that we were missing out. And I guess what, what we were missing out on was good wine. Uh, we might've been just having some crap stuff here and there and, and going, ah, I don't know if I really like this. <laughs> so that, that kind of started our quest and then after that um it was just a lot of learning process along the way going to different wineries uh doing lots of wine tasting with friends and on our own uh, and of course because we travel for a living we were able to do that in france and germany in italy all over the world actually but especially because we live in northern california we're in a great region to go to all sorts of different areas of wine regions around us so um, that started it off and then i just ended up becoming really nerdy about the whole thing and learning about the grape growing process and and uh, the wine making process and I mean you know I'm, I'm not an expert at it but I've learned a lot in the last certainly the last decade plus now how, how would you keep an eye on what's going on when you were on the road because as I said your band tours when you're you're away do you worry how the business is going yeah, I, I, well, the good thing is, is is that because I didn't go to school for winemaking, uh, I knew that I was going to have to hire a winemaker that I liked the way that they did their their job. And uh, because uh, my wife and I had been to so many wineries regionally, um, we knew that there were a couple of wineries in particular that we felt that every year, year after year, every vintage, every every varietal, every single one of those releases were done to such a great degree that we knew that the winemaker had to be amazing, and uh, and and so we just uh, we just went and did our thing and and did some research and found out who the winemakers were of our favorite wineries and. Uh, we we basically went straight to our number one choice, and that particular woman uh, had said that she would be interested in giving it a go. So um, that was where we started with, uh, because we knew that there was no way that we were going to be able to do our own winemaking. Uh, you really need to spend years learning that trade, and, and you have to have all of the stuff available to you, the crush pad and, and everything that goes with that. So we just are not set up for that. So it was much more practical for us to find a winemaker to do the job that we wanted to be done. And the great thing is, is that, of course, she works hand in hand with me uh, in, in so much as that, you know, we're, we're picking the grapes, we're, we're picking, uh, you know, we're, we're going down there and, and, 
doing uh, tastes out of the, out of the barrels at three different points along the way, and uh, and making blends and saying, okay, you know, giving her my ideas about where I want this particular vintage to go and what I how I want it to taste and all that kind of stuff. So, we we really have a, a great relationship with our winemaker, and that's and that's the key for us at this point because most times we're in Europe when when they're uh, when they're picking and crushing the grapes in, in September October. So, you know, we, we need to have faith in, in that particular part of the, the, the entire process. Now, do you think because you have a very big fan base that adding your name to a wine helps it sell? And also, if that does help it sell, do you think it raises the standard because people expect more from you because they know you're a kick-ass guitarist? Well, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a plus and minus on that. Um you know, from from my standpoint, it was all about quality wine and and becoming a wine producer of something that I could be proud of. And it was more that angle than it was about being a rock star with my name on a wine on a wine bottle. And so the the, the plus, of course, side is is that we do have such a, a, a big fan base that it makes it a little bit easier to get our name out there right off the bat. Uh, the minus to that is that in the wine industry itself, I think that a lot of people have a lack of respect for celebrity wine. Um, there, so we we also want to attract the the true wine lovers, and so you know there's a little bit of a plus and a minus to being a rock star putting out their own wine. I don't want to be a, a you know a me too kind of person, so. That's that was one of the first reasons why it took so long for me to get into this, because at first I started thinking, well, I don't want to be another one of these guys where people just think I'm just slapping my name on a wine bottle. And so it's anything but that. It's all seriously, <laughs> seriously thought after and quality wines. We, we have gold and platinum and and uh, bronze and silver medals to, to uh, most of our last couple of year releases. And it's just been it's been a really cool thing now you're from the bay area when did you start playing guitar i think you started a little older right yes i did i started at 16 and uh, most people figure that they you know I, I guess when you're getting started with a, with a career that you're really getting into you usually people start when they're in grade school or something now what drew you to playing guitar i mean what were some of your musical influences that back then well, uh, there were a lot of musical influences, but the one that probably got me most interested in playing guitar was Jimi Hendrix, and uh, that's a very similar thing that you hear from a lot of people from our, from the era that I was, you know, coming up in. Uh, Hendrix was such a huge influence on everybody at that time, and uh, luckily I had a chance to see him two different times before he passed away. So uh, I was just a young kid, but it was great. In fact, one of the first concerts I ever saw live was Jimi Hendrix live at the Oakland Coliseum with a brand new band uh, opening up for him, Chicago Transit Authority, which, of course, you know, that was their very first tour. And it was amazing. I was able to see Terry Kath, the original guitar player from that band, who was an amazing player. And uh, him live and, and Jimmy was just amazing. So that's what really got me off is that that. You know, it's amazing that you just mentioned Terry Kath, and I think he's so underrated as a guitarist. People don't know what a monster he was. I mean, you listen to 25 to 6 or 4, he just jams. And I don't think a lot of people know that because a lot of people, you know, think I'm 56. So people my age, a lot of them know some of the earlier Chicago, but they know some of the later stuff and they don't they don't correlate it with the, the great guitar work. Yes, absolutely. And, and I knew about... His guitar playing, I, I used to basically have a little uh, three-inch reel-to-reel <laughs> portable deck right next to my bed. And I, I had all of the rock stations on on FM, and, and I would plug straight into that particular little three-inch recorder and record anything that started to sound like it had a great guitar part in it. And uh, so I, I ended up, you know, doing that just to just to get to, you know, who is who's who should I be walking down the street to buy a record of? And uh, and and one of the first records that that I was impressed by at that point was Chicago Transit Authority, the very first record. Terry was amazing 
amazing guitar player. He really was. And supposedly on that tour, I think uh, Jimi Hendrix had nothing but uh, great things to say about him. Now, so you, you you start playing guitar. Now, are you self-taught or are you taking lessons or are you doing both? Well, my dad was um, not really happy with me wanting to be a musician, number one. So, uh, you know, and being an Italian boy, I started playing accordion when I was like in third grade. <laughs> and, uh, and my dad paid for a year's worth of lessons and uh, a cheap accordion. And he got really mad when I got disinterested in that when I was like, you know, 12 years old or whatever. So, so he was not happy with me uh, saying that I wanted to try something else. And I said, I, you know, I'll take my paper route money and I'll buy myself a guitar and I'll pay for my own lessons. And and so uh, I, I got this guy to come to the house to, to teach lessons. He got to about the third lesson. And and I think he was frustrated with me because I would be not really paying attention to what he wanted me to do. And while we were stand, you know, sitting there and he was trying to teach me the next thing, he would notice that I'd be stretching strings and doing all these kinds of things. And he'd ask me, how did you learn to do that? And I said, I don't know. I'm just messing around. <laughs> and, and I think out of true total frustration, he just told, told, told me, he goes, look, you know, I think you're one of these guys that's probably better off learning on your own. I think he just didn't want to teach me because I wasn't a great <laughs> student. <laughs> I didn't want to do the scales. I wanted to mess around, man. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm totally self-taught. So, so you sit there, you're, you're self-taught now. Now, what was the scene like, the music scene in the Bay Area at the time? Was it easy to join a band? Was it burgeoning when you first got into the biz? Yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't, you know, in my own hometown, you know, in East Oakland, it wasn't like, you know, everywhere you go, you're meeting somebody that's a musician. But especially when you're first starting out and you're 16 years old, you you just end up finding one person, which ends up going to another and another. And and then you know you go to local parties and you find people that are jamming there and stuff like that. And that's kind of how I started finding local musicians that were you know, worthy of playing with it. And, and, you know, and of course me personally, I didn't know if I was worthy to be, to be jamming with anybody because I was just a young kid, just learning on my own. So that was kind of the scene. It was just, just kind of hunt and peck, just find somebody. And strangely enough, um, I jammed with a, with a buddy of mine, just literally one of the first things I ever did when I was playing guitar. And some guy shows up at my parents' house that, of course, I'm living with at that time and knocks on the door and says, hey, I hear you play guitar. You want to, you want me to, you need a drummer? <laughs> so, you know, so it's funny that somebody actually found me and said, hey, you want to jam? And so, you know, that was probably my first band is that drummer and me and my friend and, you know, just jamming, just doing stupid songs. And, but, you know, it was, it was a good way to learn. It was a good way to sort of, you know, get chops, I guess. You know? Now, when did Y&T become get together were you guys a cover band at first we were yeah that was that was the whole thing as as uh you know and and very much similar to what i was saying as far as hanging out at parties that were there was a jam session going on uh, that's where i met leonard hayes our original drummer that was at a party and Previous to meeting him, I remember some other musicians coming up to me and saying, hey, man, have you checked out Leonard Hayes and Leonard Silva, these two smoking drummers from the Bay Area? And again, they got their reputation from just playing parties and hanging out and that kind of stuff. And so I ended up playing with both of those drummers, as it turned out, and uh, Leonard Silva first. And uh, the, but that ended up being a, an absolute crazy thing where you know i'd come to rehearsal and and the guys were tying themselves off and shooting heroin and uh, and had all kinds of weird guys hanging out at the rehearsal place and i was like uh yeah i don't think i want to get into this so i ended up um getting a phone call from leonard hayes as it turned out and he said you know we've got this cover band and we're looking for a guitar player because our guitar player is uh, leaving the, the state. And so I came down to jam with him, and that's how it kind of started. So, just... 
Oh, yep. let's, as I say, you started, you know, you started with covers. When did you guys decide you were going to start writing your own music? Was it something that just kicked you in the ass and said, we got to write our own music? Or just sitting there one night going, I'm getting tired of playing covers? Well, the cover thing was good for us for a couple of things, because obviously we were we were getting better as musicians by playing four one-hour sets a night, uh, wherever we would play. Um, and the other thing was is that it allowed us to make enough money to buy some gear. And uh, it allowed me to buy the amplifier that I wanted to buy and a few other things. And it also taught us a lesson of sorts of songwriting, because we're we're basically learning other people's songs and we're seeing how they put their arrangements together. And, and, and I think that helped us when we finally decided to do it. But, uh, after about a year and a half of playing maybe a year and three quarters of playing uh, cover tunes and playing every gig that we could find, uh, myself and, and Leonard started thinking about, man, you know, the, the music that we would hang out together and, and listen to all the time, let's start you know doing our own thing and 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 make music like that and so when we started writing original material at that point it was pretty heavy and uh, the other guys in the band were not into that style and they were like is this what you guys want to do i'm out so we had started on the quest then at that point to find you know, different musicians that were into the style of music that we were writing. And it didn't take very long. And it took, probably all came together within about a month's time that we found Phil Kenamore and Joey Alves. And uh, we went from there. And, and, and so we were still playing, uh, I'd say probably a, about a 60, 40 split of 60%, maybe 70% uh, cover tunes and 30% originals. Cause it took us a while to finally start writing enough songs to, to make an impact. Uh, but that once we got going then and started putting on our own shows locally, and that was the thing, that was what made us happen so quickly in the Bay Area is that we got this great idea. There's all these empty halls that they're using for like union halls and things like that and uh, community centers and stuff like that. Why don't we rent them and put on our own gigs and put flyers out at the high schools? And that's how we got our start with getting us a reputation of, of, of the kind of players who were in the style of music. Now, when you're doing that, is it attracting management? Is it, is it, you know, is there people there out in the Bay area that are like, this is a hot band. You know, we know someone in LA cause the, the, the you know, the record deals were mostly the big ones were in LA, but right. what was there, was there, when you started getting some juice and people were noticing you, because as you said, you were, you're very proactive putting your own shows. Did people of importance in the industry start coming out to see you? Not as much. Um, what we found for us was that uh, we had a bunch of people that wanted to help us and said, hey, man, I can manage you, you know, that kind of routine. Where every, every band gets one of those or two or, or a dozen. And uh, in particular, there was this one kid, and he kind of got us started in a way and because none of us really had a lot of faith in the guy. In fact, we thought he was kind of goofy. And But what ended up happening was is that uh, we put together a couple of bucks and went in and did a four-song demo tape and at a local uh, recording studio. And he took that demo tape and he goes, I'm going to find somebody. And we're like, oh, God, <laughs> <laughs> this is embarrassing. But sure enough, he goes to pretty much the best and biggest management company in the Bay Area which was Herbie Herbert and uh, Lou Bramey. They had a they had a company together. These two guys, and Herbie had just signed on uh, this new band Journey, and so uh, we we knew that the guy was you know obviously had his stuff together. He was uh, originally working with Santana and all this kind of stuff, and he talked a big talk and walked the big walk. Basically, he was he was a high end guy, uh, Herbie Herbert, and. Uh, and he came out to see our first show, which is, again, one of these kind of gigs where we put it on ourselves. And uh, the place was overrun with people. There were too many people. There's probably more people outside than there were inside. And the inside was was packed beyond you know what it was supposed to be. And uh, there was so much stuff going on. There were uh, helicopter, police helicopters overhead <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. They broke the gig off before we even got on stage. 
And so out comes, you know, this manager who had his stuff together and he never even got a chance to see us until months later when we were able to come back and do another show. But once he did, he was very impressed right off the bat. And we, we ended up signing a deal with him and, uh, uh, that management company is what got us our first record deal. Also, of course, because we were uh, the only two bands that he had was us and Journey. We were playing tons of gigs with Journey when Journey was first starting out. And uh, it kept, sort of made a big impact in the Bay Area because we were playing all sorts of big shows together. And that really brought us forward. What was it like when you went in the studio? I mean, for the you know, it was through London Records, I believe. What was it like going into the studio for that first time when they said, "Hey, here, you you know, you you are you had original stuff already, but going into the studio, what was that like when you knew this is going to happen? We're going to have yeah. an album come out." Yeah, no, it was it was an amazing time for us. Obviously, you know, because of the fact that it was the seventies and it was the mid seventies or just just getting to the mid seventies, things were so difficult to get record deals i mean you know uh, nowadays you can get your you don't even need a record deal you can put your record out and stick it online and you know do all the social media uh stuff that you need to do back then to get a legitimate record deal was a rare moment in time if you could get one and uh, and so we felt we felt like we were on top of the world. Hey, we got a real record deal and we're going to go into a real recording studio and, and do an album. It was, it was like Christmas <laughs> every day of the week. Right. And, um, and especially when we got our first front monies from the record deal and we could buy all the gear that we wanted, you know, I mean, it was, it was an amazing time. Now going into the recording studio, we were complete, absolute, complete novices we had no clue what the hell we were going to do except we knew how to play together as a band and um unfortunately i can say if, but fortunately in a way there's there's, a, there's the, the, the minus and the plus again of, of this is the fact that because we were raw kids just playing the way that we played with a lot of passion a lot of energy um we got a lot of that on that first record. Uh, that was very obvious. And, and the bad side was is that uh, Lou and Herbie uh, didn't find an amazing producer the first time around. They, they, they got basically a live mixer um, kind of guy that had been doing you know, a lot of stuff for, for you know, big acts and things like that. He ended up being our producer and he was the first time he was doing it. <laughs> so um, it was really Lou, one of our managers, and this guy, Smiggy, um, that had produced the record. And, of course, because neither of them had ever produced a record before, they really didn't put the clamps on us like they should have because we were so young and ripe and, uh, you know, unaware of what the process was supposed to be like. They just let us go crazy in the studio and play like we do live, which meant everything was super fast and super energetic. Uh, you know, so that, that was a plus and a minus, I guess. Now, as you bring, you start, you know, you release the albums. Now, do you start going on tour more? Do you get out of the Bay Area? Oh, yeah. Well, we started, we started at first uh, concentrating on the West Coast. And uh, because uh, Herbie had a, a lot of contacts with promoters in uh, Southern California and Northern California, we were concentrating on those two two, two areas. In fact, um, Herbie got us our one of our first big shows was playing at the Santa Monica Civic, uh, opening up for Kiss on their first tour. And so that was that way. Actually, Kiss wasn't even the headliner. Jojo Gunn was the headliner, <laughs> and it was and and Kiss was the second band. But actually, they, it, for all intents and purposes, were the headliner, and they put on a big show. You know, uh, very first time I ever saw anything like that before at a live show with with all of the bombs going off and you know everything else. So it was it was pretty impressive. But and you know, considering that we were so young and we didn't even have our first album out yet, out you know, we were just 
doing half and half original and, and, and cover tunes, it was a pretty impressive thing that Herbie was able to get us to do that. But uh, we concentrated after that, of course, uh, playing every place that uh, had live national acts um, up and down the, the West Coast at first. Then when our album came out, we did our very first tour. Now, it wasn't a long tour, uh, because I guess it was difficult for them to put us to get put us out there as a headliner first time, just doing clubs and small halls. But uh, we went out there and we had a support act that was going to do the whole tour with us, and it was the Runaways, and it was the Runaways' very first tour playing with us on our first tour so and you know the runaways had all kinds of great you know talent obviously that that ended up becoming big stars as as years went by joan jett and and uh, so many different people so you know it just you know lita ford but anyway uh that was that was our first endeavor was going out there and doing like it was about three weeks or four weeks on on the road doing mostly I'd say uh, West Coast and the Southwest and the South and a little bit of the Midwest and then home. Now, you're out touring, you're recording albums. How do you end up going over to A&M? A&M was pretty much brought to us through our management company. Um, they were trying to get us a record deal, and like so many bands that are trying to get a record deal, you get you get so many people that you that you have supposedly coming to a show, and then they don't show up, and then when they finally do show up, they are not interested, or you know whatever, and and so you get a lot of passes, and you get a lot of. Um, we're going to be there, but we don't show up. And so eventually he got somebody interested and, uh, you know, he was very excited. Number one, just because he finally got someone interested and it was London records. Uh, well at that particular point, we already had a, a show booked at the Berkeley community theater, uh, opening up for queen. And so it was just a night of, it was night of the opera tour and it was queen and why and yesterday and today. And just the two of us playing two shows in one night. And so it was a perfect event to have uh, the actual owner of, of London Records came out to see the show. And he came backstage and said he was very impressed and wanted to make a deal. So that that's really how that whole thing got started. But now, was did A&M own London? No. London was just its own thing. And uh, at that point... They had the Rolling Stones, they had ZZ Top, they had a lot of different artists on there that we thought, okay, well, you know, they do rock and roll too, because obviously one of their main things London Record did was classical music and what they would call pop music of the 40s, you know, guys like Engelbert Humperdinck and stuff like that. And so, you know, we, we thought, well, but they got some rock and roll, they have April Wine, they have a couple other people. Well, as it turned out, as we were doing our second record for them, uh, they decided to drop all of their rock acts before our album had even gotten finished being mixed and, and mastered and all that kind of stuff. So we already knew that our second record was going to be dead in the water before it even got released, which was a very, very disappointing thing for a bunch of young kids that that felt like, wow, we had that first record out, we're starting to make some impact, and now, oh man, our record company's basically folding for us. So, uh, it was tough. Now, when you went to A&M, you, you recorded, I mean, three albums uh, in the first three years, which, what's that like as an artist sitting there? I mean, an, an album a year, that's a lot of material to write. I mean, you know, I mean, what was it like? How were you guys churning it out? Did you Were you very disciplined as writers, or were you sitting there, and when an idea came to you, would you write? We were the type of band that would go to our rehearsal studio, which luckily we had in an industrial area, so it didn't matter. We could be there all hours of the day and night playing at concert volume in there in this small room, and we did. Uh, we would get there as soon as we could wake up and get to the re rehearsal studio, and we'd sit there for 12, 14 hours a day and just jam and jam and write and jam and write, literally just you know, whatever come up out, out of a jam would be, hey, oh, man, that just inspired me. I got this idea for a lick. Hold on a minute. Let, let me work this out. Okay. Oh, hey, hey, play that. Play this. And then let's jam this out. And then let's see where we go from here. And everybody put their ideas in. And that's how we wrote. And we were, 
we had, of course, a lot of time to write between the second record with London that went, you know, basically belly up before it even came out, which was called Struck Down, before we got our our next record deal with A&M. That was about two and a half years in between. So all that time we had spent, you know, constantly still playing all the time and playing live shows and writing material. So by the time our very first record came out with A&M, Earthshaker, all that material had already been written and tried at a live audience so it was really uh an advantage for us but of course after that now next record comes out and we go on tour for the first one and immediately come home and it's like okay you got three months hurry up you got three months to write and record the next record and then bring it out again so now that of course was our very first endeavor at really finding out whether or not we could come up with the goods in a short amount of time. Well, as it turned out, because we were so excited for having this new deal and and finally starting to get some airplay around the U.S., things just started to happen. And uh, and we got extra inspired by the fact that, a, that A&M was finding out without us knowing it that we were kicking ass in Europe and the UK and Japan, even though we didn't know anything about it. So they got us to go to do our second record in the UK for us as well, because we had, we're now playing for people in another country and getting ideas of where we're, you know, where our strengths and weaknesses are as a band and, and putting that all into the black tiger record. So, and, and it was the same thing, you know, between Black Tiger and Mean Streak, we had to say, except that we toured so much for the Black Tiger record that when we had to go and write for the Mean Streak record, we had even less time to write. So it was, it was, uh, we we were honing our craft and we were becoming uh, much better uh, songwriters as as we went along. And it was a little bit faster for us to put things together than than the original, you know, time period that when, when we first got together. Do you ever think, because it was before the internet, you know, did you ever think, how did they find out about you in Japan and UK? It's always weird, you know, like, Japan has, every musician I've talked to has just said, when they play Japan, it's it's insane. I mean, the fans are the best. But how do you think they found out about you guys? Well, they found out about us through the Yesterday and Today records, um, because there was a very popular... um, industry person, well, I want to say interest industry, I mean, sort of like the Eddie Trunk, I guess you could say, of of Japan. And he was a person that had his own radio show, and, uh, and everybody knew Masahito. So Masahito just happened to be in Los Angeles when we were playing one of our shows, touring on, one, on the first couple of records, uh, as yesterday and today. So when he came back, he brought with him all that information about this band yesterday and today, and he convinced some local company to release yesterday and today in Japan. So before we even got to, um, you know, to, to release our first record with A&M, there was already a, a starting of something happening in Japan. And again, unbeknownst to us, because A&M never told us anything. London Records never told us anything. Our manager never told us anything. I mean, no, no one, no one knew that this this whole thing was starting to brew uh, until we finally got there uh, on the Black Tiger record and and did our very first tour. Well, we ended up doing our first tour as a headliner, playing these these big places, and it was like, wow what's going on? You know, everything's happening so quickly over there and over in Europe and the UK, but not so much in America. It was, you know, we had the West coast and we had, you know, Texas and a few other places that we were, that we were really developed. But, you know, the rest of the U S was, was to us was like this, this place we had no impact on or very little. Now, you know, when, when in rock, we trust was, you know, a very popular album, what do you think? How do you, did the musical landscape change? Do you think it was because the harder music was coming in? Because that was in '84. Why do you think that became, you know, so you know popular when you guys were already 
popular overseas. So you, you have the chops. What do you think was the tipping point, as they say, that made that album popular? Uh, well, we were getting more and more airplay with each new album and each new single that we had. And uh, Mean Streak was probably the biggest up until that point because the, the actual song Mean Streak got had uh, more exposure on American radio than any other single that we had put out. And, and plus, that was our very first release of a, of a video because MTV was pretty new back in 82, 83. So our first video came out and the, the most saturation on American radio. So that set us up for the next release, which was in Rock We Trust. Well, within Rock We Trust, we had multiple singles that went out and uh, and multiple videos. And plus we were on some of the biggest uh, tours of the year. So I think... Um, all of that combined to to make uh, that particular record one of the one of the highlights of, of our career as far as record sales went and popularity. Now, what is that feeling when the, you feel you know you're you've been busting your ass for years? You know, you guys have recorded albums that have gotten great critical acclaim and the fans love them. What is it like when all of a sudden you start? seeing that success you start seeing yourself on billboard magazine you know what is that like as a performer does that get you more excited to produce more or do you sit there and get a little passive because you're like we just want to take it in <laughs> never got passive never got to that point no we were we were go-getters man we fully went 100 trillion percent always rehearsing always playing always writing um, it just never, it never stopped. I mean, we'd see the articles and we'd think, wow, that's cool. You know, we're getting more exposure, man. We got to get out there more. We got to tour more. We got to, we got to, you know, make it just more and we just basically pile on top of that and, and hope for the best. And, uh, so that's where we were at. We, we never felt like we were going to rest for a second and, and sit back and go, man, that's cool. Let's take it all in. Nah. It just it was just it was nice to see, but let's keep going. Now, you know, Summertime Girls was your biggest hit. Um when's the first time you heard that on the radio? Do you remember? I don't remember the first time I heard it on radio, no. I remember more some of the earlier songs when it was more impactful that, that you know, finally we hear ourselves on the radio. But no, that one I, I can't honestly say you know, that anything comes to mind and a memory about that. But um, the, the main thing that came to mind for me was the fact that when we were out on tour with Motley Crue uh, for that particular release, um, that our manager told us that we were the 10th most requested song in the country at that point. And we thought, wow, okay, <laughs> that thing, things are really starting to happen. And plus we were on heavy rotation for the video on MTV. So everything was happening around that time frame for the, that song, the release, the, the particular tour we were on. Of course, it was released in the summer, which didn't hurt. <laughs> Uh, now you're you're doing great. You're doing you're kicking ass. And uh, now now Leonard gets fired. Your drummer was that hard to do? Oh man, was that hard to do? You bet. Uh, we were the kind of band that, and we talked about it many times. You know, we used you used to see these guys that, especially in the in in the UK, seemingly so many British bands somebody would leave some band and they were now in another popular band. And then they'd leave that band and they go to another popular band. And we would see it was kind of like everyone was trading off players, you know, right and left at that time. And it felt to us like, oh, God, I don't ever want to do that. That's confusing for the fans. I mean, as a fan of that band, I don't want to see them change members. I, I want the original band to last forever. And that was the way we felt about things. And we certainly didn't want to make a change in the band. What ended up happening, of course, is Leonard just got completely out of hand and out of control for many years before we fired him. So it, it was it was something that absolutely was, there was no choice in the matter. It, it got to the point of critical and past critical 
and uh, we let it go too long, and unfortunately, it wasn't getting any better, no matter what we did. So it was the most difficult decision we ever had to make. It was. It felt so unnatural for us to have any of our original members leave. So yeah, it was. It was a really tough time. Now, what is it like bringing someone in new? You guys have such a camaraderie. You've been playing for so long. Is it is it tough for you to find someone? Because there has to be a trust, because you guys trust each other. You've been on stage so much. What, did it take a while to find his replacement? Uh, not too bad. Um, basically, we got the word out through our manager, and uh, <laughs> we had a lot of interest. Uh, he got something over 300 people had had gotten back to him. And, excuse me. And he whittled that down to 33 drummers. So, yeah, we weren't having a problem getting getting uh, guys that were interested in joining the band. And they were coming in from all over the place. They were coming in from all over the U.S. And, um, you know, we would have guys flying in. Uh, one day and then the next day another guy flying in and then somebody coming up from LA and then somebody local and we would do three auditions a day and it took forever to go through that three sometimes we do five in a day but that was that was really tiring uh, and and with each new drummer coming in uh, the SIR company that that has all this rental gear they would come down and you know bring a new drum kit in you know every single time for for those particular auditions or guys would bring in their own kits and we'd have to wait for them and to set everything up while we're talking to them and then we would play five songs with them all with different tempos and different uh different attitudes to them to see, you know, if they could master a lot of stuff that, uh, that we were doing and how they fit in, you know, just as, as a hang kind of thing, you know, do we like the guy too? Uh, you know, what's his attitude like and all this kind of stuff and what's his commitment like? So it was, it was difficult, but it, it wasn't difficult finding people to be interested in, in joining the band. It was just a long process that took about uh, probably about three months before we finalized on someone. Now, in 91, you guys uh, discontinued the group. What happened? We just got so disenchanted with the industry. The industry, the, the fan base was never faltering it was there the whole way i mean some people got po'd at us when we released summertime girls because it was so you know so much more of a, of a commercial thing for a band like us which wasn't playing in that vein that much uh but you know i think they kind of you know some people didn't get over it for a while some people got over it when we you know released some other material later and it, and it was like oh no it's, it's cool but um but it wasn't the fan base. It was the music industry. It was the music business. We were constantly getting shifted around by being number one, number one biggest problem, never on the right record company. London Records was not the right record company for us. A&M was not the right record company for us. And then when we finally went to Geffen, they were the right record company for us. But when our two releases with them were ready to come out they had way more important acts to have to deal with at that time so we got buried and uh, and and so we just got to this point where you know okay we've got 17 years in, in the industry and every time that we're trying to get now a new release on you know to be played on the radio we're getting this attitude back that uh, independent promotion is saying, well, you know, some of these guys of the record group or the radio stations are like, oh, those guys again? And it's like, wow. So now being in the industry a long time is working against us with, with the radio stations. <laughs> it was like, wow, really? Come on, man. And, and so we just got so frustrated with the way things were working. And, of course, as it started getting close to the end of the 80s, um, you know, grunge started up a bit, and uh, and and that started changing the the scene a little bit. And it just got to the point where we were like, you know, we've been beating our heads up against the wall, trying to get past this particular last last thing that's holding us back from going all the way. You know, well, we, well, we thought we did go all the way in some regions, but you know, you know, 
for the for the most part just overall feeling like we we still needed to get over this particular hump and it was just taking forever and it just wasn't going and now we're getting a lot of pushback from the industry so at that point we just said look if if this second release would deafen if they don't put some money into it and really try to you know say hey man we got these guys we're putting money into it let's let's go with it then i think maybe it's time for us to go our separate ways and do something else well we released our first single off of that 10 record which was the second release on geffen and we had our uh, a tour you know already planned and before we even went out and played the first show they said we're not going to release a second single we're done with you guys see ya we're like wow really so at that point we had to cancel our tour and uh and and so i just told our manager i said well i said before we release this record if if they don't go in i think it's time to do something else well it's time let's and and so he said well let's do these this last thing let's go up and down the west coast and do about eight shows as a farewell tour and we'll record the last two shows and so that's exactly what we did. And the last two shows were December 30th and December 31st from 1990 into 91, I think it was. Uh, and so, um, and then we released that as a record called Yesterday and Day Live and uh, put that out on a different record company. Uh, Metal Blade Records, as it turned out, wanted it. So uh, so that was, uh, that was it. And as far as we were concerned, that was the end of Y&T. Now you went and you recorded a a blues solo album. What made you decide to go the route of blues? Well, strangely enough, um, over the years of of getting reviews for the band and everything, a lot of a lot of the reviews said that they loved our blues based hard rock style, and everybody would keep saying blues based, blues based. And uh, yeah, I never really dawned on the whole, you know, sort of thing behind that because I just felt like we were doing heavy rock, you know, it was what it was. But I was always a lover of the blues. And, and when I first started playing guitar, I met this guy that was like 10 years older than me that uh, was a guitar player that I used to jam with. And he was such a blues fanatic. And we would sit at his house and listen to blues records that, and he would, he would show me all these guys that I didn't know about before. And then we just got totally into that kind of stuff. And when we would jam, we do a lot of blues jams and stuff like this is way before Y&T. So, so that was kind of a beginning of, of where I came from in the first place. So maybe some of that bluesiness, I don't know, got out there somewhere. I didn't see it, but, but uh, anyway, when, when the band had broken up about a year or so afterwards, my manager called me up and said, you know, uh, I just got this suggestion from this guy uh, that that puts out you know independent records, and uh, and and he said, you know what Dave should do? He's got such great blues chops. He should do a blues record. <laughs> and so it was literally that 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 got me started because as soon as he said that, it was like a light bulb went off in my uh, head and said, oh my god, of course. And so within literally two weeks, I'd already had like five songs done. And, uh, and, and I got some of the guys from, from, from Y&T and then also some other different musicians to come down to my newly constructed recording studio and, uh, and started putting the songs down. That's where it started. So, you know, you're doing your solo stuff. Now, how did you guys end up getting back together, the band? Well, what happened was is that when we broke up, I immediately started to build a recording studio because I thought, well, I, I'm going to I'm going to record my own stuff at this point, uh, or whatever else is going to happen. And uh, of course, it was the stupidest thing for me to do, but the smartest thing, because the stupid thing being that now I have no income and I'm uh, basically spending all this money making a legitimate recording studio, you know, off the back of my garage, a whole new structure. And now I'm I'm taking fifty thousand dollars of credit cards and, and financing my studio construction on credit cards, and I'm out there every day with my tool belt on doing the doing the work, and it was just absolutely madness. But it was the coolest thing 
because, you know, a year and a half later, I now have a fully functioning recording studio that we could do real records in. And, uh, and so by the time that was done, that's when I first started, of course, doing, doing the first, uh, the first independent Minichetti blues record. But while I was doing that for that first year, I had not played, I had not done anything musical. I was just doing construction stuff. And our, our, my manager called and said, how would you guys like to get back together for one show a year later after our last show playing the same venue on New Year's Eve? And I was like, oh, man, I don't know. That's kind of weird. But and, but then again, I am Jones of the play. So, you know, it's not like we're getting back together. We're just going to do a show. All right. So we did that. Of course, it sold out. It, it did great. And, and we were just like, oh, man, I so miss this. But back to back to work, we go, I go back to, you know, constructing and getting the studio ready. And then the same thing happens the next year. So it's two years in a row we play a New Year's Eve show only and at the same venue. Well, then a couple of years after I had, a couple of months after I'd started my solo thing, the manager goes, uh, would you guys be willing to do, do a couple of local shows? You know, come on, man. Let's 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 get the band back together to just play some local stuff, just just because it's fun. And that was the feeling that everybody had, like, oh God, we need to get out and play again. That's just this is, you know, I'm missing I'm missing the the live performance side of things. So we play like five shows, and we're all looking at each other, going, "What are we doing? Why are we broken up? This band is so good, and we've got all this great material." Who cares whether grunge is in right now and nobody is booking bands like us? I don't care. Let's just play these shows and have fun locally and, and in the West Coast. So we did, and somehow or another, somebody in Japan hears that we're playing shows again, says, oh, the band's back together? How would you guys like to do an independent you know, release in Japan? So you know, then I, that started, and then we started writing in my new, new studio, and we did the record there, and then we do another one, and then we go over to Japan to tour on it, and, you know, we're just doing spotty dates here and there, mostly just playing probably like eight shows a year for the next, like, six years in a row. So it wasn't like, I mean, the band was back together, literally, but we weren't really doing that much, because it was a terrible time for our style of music because of grunge being in at the time. So uh, it was just one of those things that we kind of wait as, as, as 2000 comes around, all this interest starts coming in from all over the place. And so one of the first things was, which, Hey, how, how would you guys like to come to Sweden and do the Sweden rock festival? Well, Sweden rock festival is one of the biggest festivals in Europe. And so we're like, hell yes. I was like, I never wanted to stop playing the UK and Europe, as it turned out anyway. So now Phil and I, the two guys in the band that never wanted to stop, are now getting our chance to go back. And so once we hit Sweden Rock in 2001, I think it was, or 2003 actually it was, yeah, 2003, um, that was the beginning of of going full-time again and, and really going for it. And uh, from that point on, we, we changed managers. My wife managed the band, and we went from playing 5 to 10 to 12 shows a year to playing 30, 50, 75, 80 shows a year, touring in Europe and the U.K. every year now, going back to Japan every year now, going across the U.S. whenever we can, all that kind of stuff. So it all changed. Well, now, what's it like for you guys now? You know, I mean, it's it's you're the only original member left. Uh, unfortunately, the other three have passed away. And for you, it's it's you know you are the brand YNT. People know you. I mean, that's just the way it is. You're the front man, the lead guitarist, the, the main songwriter. Right. What is it like now when you go play and you have hardcore old school fans? When it's a different band, are they more judge not judgmental? But they sit there and think, oh, this isn't the original lineup. I mean, what's the feedback you get about that? Well, back in the early days when we were playing uh, again and going out and really doing it, 2003, 2004, it was mostly the original band. It was still Leonard on drums because we put and and it was phil and myself so it was just really that joey didn't want to come back and play i mean we asked him 
but he just, you know, physically was not able to do it. He just wasn't feeling good about it. And he just said, I'm done. I'm done being a touring musician. So uh, we got John Nyman in the band and uh, basically nobody complained. I mean, every once in a while, at first, you know, every once in a while, you'd be in between a song and somebody go, where's Joey? You know, or something like that. But mostly, I, I, I think that it, it was it was okay. It was when we got rid of Leonard the second time around uh, in, in 2006 that uh, it got a little testy uh, because, you know, people loved Leonard and we loved Leonard, but unfortunately, he didn't love himself enough to, you know, be serious with his health and uh, and his drugs and and that just made a huge impact on his abilities. Uh, he wanted to keep going, but he just didn't have the abilities to really do it well, and it was just frustrating as hell for all of us. So uh, it, it was a little bit hard when we replaced Leonard that second. It was hard the first time mainly, but the second time now that we're back out and around, uh, it, it was a little tough. At first, when when Mike Vanderpool came in, but Mike just mastered the thing, and it wasn't very long into it that people were just happy that we were still playing. It was more that than you know who's in the band, and but but it became who's in the band because people got so used to seeing Mike Vanderpool, you know, Dave Benichetti, and and uh, and of course. Phil Kennemore and and John Nyman, that was the band for the longest time. They were so used to that. As far as they're concerned, this is good. This is They're playing the songs like it should be, and uh, there were no complaints. If anything, it was the other way around. Every single time we play, every year we play, as it still is today, they keep going, you guys are better than you were last year. How is that possible? You know, and, and still to this day, I mean, I'm, you know, not a young guy, but I mean, I feel young, but you know what I'm saying? You know, the, the, the years say that I'm not supposedly, but you know, the band gets better every year and my voice is great every year. So it's like, wow, I guess, you know, why, who's complaining? No one now. Right now, now, you know, you, as I said, you know, the music landscape has changed too. You know, if people are loving the eighties again, which I'm, I'm a big eighties guy and that, you know, and that's great because it was such a great time for music. But then in 2018, you released a classic acoustic album, right? Right. Now what made, what made you decide to do that? Just because it was something that it was, you wanted to do a different slant on your music, maybe introduce a whole new crowd to your music or why did you choose to do an acoustic album? Well, our bass player, uh, Aaron Lee, um, he has been playing acoustically on and off doing, you know, his solo shows, just, just, you know, playing wineries or, you know, any gig he can get kind of thing for many years. And, uh, he knew, in his heart that if Y&T would just get in and do some of our classic stuff acoustically, he thought it would just be killer. And he had a lot of convincing to do because we talked about doing acoustic stuff for the last 20 years and <laughs> half of us poo-pooed it and half of us didn't. And, uh, you know, for me, I didn't want to do it. To be honest with you, I, I was one of the guys that would say no because I just felt like Y&T was born and raised as a hard, heavy, loud rock and roll band, live electric. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just didn't see the point. And, and again, I felt like, just like with the wine, are we just piling on? Are we just going to be another one of these bands that does an acoustic record just to put something out there? I, I just didn't want to do it if it didn't feel like it was genuine or it was something that we all wanted to do. And so now, of course, many years into it, and, and our new bass player says, no, man, I'm telling you, I think that, that we could do some really cool stuff with it. And then I, I, so we started playing, and I said, you know what I want to do? I want, I want to make sure that we did a different slant to some of these songs, not just play them verbatim like, like the regular two. I mean, we'll, you know, obviously do the similar arrangement, but, you know, let's, let's do some stuff that people wouldn't expect us to do acoustically like black tiger or barroom boogie i mean nobody's going to think that we're going to do that acoustically and and let's see what happens and so uh it ended up being a really fun thing for all of us to put together and and it was especially cool for me to you know 
maybe put a little different slant on the way that I approach the vocals. And of course, the guitar solos are so totally different on acoustic guitar. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, we, we didn't take us very long to do the thing. I mean, we probably recorded for, you know, a week and a half and, uh, you know, quite a different uh, deal than doing a full on, you know, brand new record that takes months to, to, to put together. So now, now when this when this whole situation passes, I'm sure you guys will go out on the road again. When you play live now, how do you get a set list together? Because you have so many albums, and you know, and I'm sure you know you have a very devout uh, following, and people want to hear certain songs. And you know, it's one of those things. You know, you can't please everybody. But how do you put? Do you when you tour? Do you pretty much have the same set list every night, or do you toss in some different things different nights? We are now doing things slightly differently than we've done before. I would say on previous tours up until about three years ago, we would literally write the set list a couple of minutes before we'd go on stage every night. And so, you know, we would go off of a lot of the stuff that we were doing the night before and then just change it up and change it up. Madness, absolute madness. When we write set lists, it's crazy, man. <laughs> it's it's the thing that nobody wants to do because if you try to put them in the right order, and, and of course we try to think of things, uh, you know, building and building and then bring it down and then build it and build it until the end and this and that. I mean, in order to do that, you got to put certain songs in certain places. And, uh, you know, that's the way we always approached the set list. It is, it's like it's a total show thing. It's not just like, you know, random songs we could stick in any place in the set. No, that's that's meant to go at this port part and then come in with this, you know, the dramatics. We wanted it all to be, you know, a certain way. Well, to do that every night with as many songs as we have, knowing that there's at least eight or ten songs that people absolutely feel they have to hear us play every single night, you know, that only leaves a certain amount of spots. And, uh, and so we've had fun, though, because we play a good two to two hours and 15 minutes every single time we play. And so that gives us lots of slots to play with. The last couple of years now, we have been basically doing like if when we do the European tour or we do the U.S. tour, which is about eight weeks in a row, typically, um, we'll stick with one set list and we'll change a couple of songs out every once in a while. And that's kind of what we've been doing. But with each year that we come back to do that, we totally change the set list every year because we don't want anyone to come back one year after the next or even one year after two years before, let's say, and, and say, oh, man, it's the same songs. No, we're not going to do that. So we're, 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 we will sit there a month before we go out on a tour and say, what do you guys want to do this time? What do you want to pull out from the archives that we haven't played at all or very much in the last 10 years or whatever? And that's what we do. And then we get together and we'll play like five or six or seven of these songs and we'll try to figure out which ones really seem like they're coming off well live. And then we'll throw those into the set uh, so that there's something different and interesting every single time that we go out. Now, where do you put Summertime Girls in this set? Because, as you said, it's more commercial. It's not as hard as your other ones. And it must be, where do you start with that? Do you encore with that, or do you throw it in the middle? We've pretty much been putting it near the last third, I would say. Um, you know, we, we like to get out and and do a lot of our straight ahead heavy rock stuff and, you know, dif different styles. I mean, the, the good thing about Y&T that why I think everybody that's ever joined this band has loved this band is the variety of material that we have. You know, I mean, ACDC is one of my favorite rock bands and every song has got an ACDC particular style to it. And it's basically like one big long set of one song. You know, I mean, if I'm not being, I'm not trying to be, you know, negative about that. I'm just saying that that's what they do and that's what they do best. And that's why people love them is the fact that they don't vary that much. Well, we vary quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, we've got heavy fast stuff. We've got heavy mid-tempo stuff. We've got more melodic stuff. It, 
but it's fun as a musician and it's fun for the fans because they love all the different aspects of what we do a band that can do something like hurricane and then the next song can be i believe in you is a is totally different type of song but yet they both come off equally to the same audience so i think that we've got a lot going for us that way so that makes it better for us as when we're constructing our set list, but harder also is, is like, wow, now where do we put these styles of songs, the more melodic stuff and, you know, and, and you can't do too many in a row and you got to throw some, some good hard and heavy stuff to, to keep the tempos going. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, fun thing to do. Um, and I say fun with my tongue in cheek. <laughs> now, is there any new, uh, a new album possibly in the future or are you recording stuff on your own? Are you still writing? We are going to do some writing in in this year and uh, and probably into next year. Um, I, I don't know how long of a of a period we're going to have off here, but this is like the perfect time for us to to start putting some new songs together. So so uh, it's it's going to be a, a slow process, I think, until until I'm in total songwriting mode. Because when at least for me, for me, when 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 I get into songwriting mode it takes maybe a couple of days or maybe a week or two but once i get going all of a sudden things start coming like super fast and i'll have new ideas every every day almost so um you know i mean that's that's just a, a thing that i do myself personally i'm not the kind of guy that writes a song every day or comes up with a new idea while i'm sitting in the office doing paperwork you know i i i basically like to carve out time for songwriting and let myself get into it and do nothing but that. And so that's, that's my, that's my process. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you for uh, taking your time to talk to me. First of all, what's your, uh, first of all, people, the wine site is Menachetti, M-E-N-I-K-E-T-T-I wines.com. What's your favorite wine of all your wines? Oh man, that's tough. Uh, I, I really do like them all, I, and, and I, I hate to give that <laughs> that strange answer of favorite wine. Uh, I, you know, honestly, every night that we will have wine, it runs the gamut. You know, I, I, I like drinking rosé personally, and our brand new 2019 rosé we're just releasing this week, and it is absolutely awesome. It is just I love drinking it. I drink it not just in the summertime or the spring. I drink it, you know, all year long. So that is great. Uh, the Chardonnay, you know, it's just, it's really tough, man. But I, I think the, the main thing that I drink on a regular basis is Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir goes with almost every food and it's not a super heavy wine. So, you know, some nights you just don't feel like having a super heavy wine. So it's a perfect red wine to have on a, on a, uh, you know, on a weekly basis kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's just a lot of fun, man. It's a lot of fun having great wines out there and yeah. having a lot of opportunity to, to and, and if we don't have something we bought from someone else, Hey, let's open our own. Exactly. Well, people check out the wine site. The, the, the band site is Y and T rocks.com. Are you on Twitter, Dave? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I am personally and the band is as well. It's Y M T rocks on uh, Twitter and Dave Minichetti, of course, uh, for, for both uh, Facebook and Twitter for me. Well, that's awesome. So people, go check out their music. Go check out YNT. Go check out their wines. Uh, check out my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 780 episodes on there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.